Thank God it's Free Range. You are listening to Free Range Radio Friday with your host, Michael Elves. Pour yourself a beverage and turn up the volume because here on 101.5 UMFM, the weekend starts now. UMFM, this is Thank God It's Free Range, the Friday edition of Free Range Radio. I'm Michael Elves, and kicking things off for us tonight, Scarborough's Looney, with a new single that dropped yesterday called Dare You. And there's a video out on YouTube, which I posted on my blog, Reductive Reviews, and tweeted out on my Twitter account, at Duke underscore K-U-N. 
Playing that loony because it was announced that they are the opener for Rye at the Garrick this Sunday evening. And speaking of Rye, I spoke to Mike Milos earlier this week about the new EP, about the tour, and about a whole bunch of other stuff. We're going to get to that after we hear one more track from Looney, because I'm really digging what they're doing, and I encourage you to show up early and catch them opening for Rye on Sunday night. That's 8 o'clock early show at the Garrick. This is A Small Flame, Looney, here on 101.5 UMFM. Oh, my God. 
All right, bringing his latest EP, Spirit, to the Garrick on the 15th. Mike Milos, a.k.a. Rye, joins us by phone. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing very well and excited to uh, see what the, the latest incarnation uh, of, of this is because I know that you did uh, the folk festival. You had your live band with you uh, around the time of Blood. And uh, I, I know that you've kind of transitioned towards the piano a lot on the new EP. Are, are you kind of stripping things back for this round of performances or is the whole band coming with you? No, it'll be the whole band. Because I'm not doing like a tour that's uh, spirit specific. It's not like supposed to be just the EP okay. um, or the record. It's just me doing a Rye show in general. So I don't even know what songs we're doing yet. I probably won't know until I get there. You know, I make that decision as late as possible. Is there a reason you make that decision as late as possible? Yeah, I mean, you don't really know what the vibe is of the place until you're there. So I kind of like making that decision after walking around and checking everything out. Yeah, so kind of post sound check then coming off of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you know, I just want to like shoehorn in a set to an environment that I don't really know what what's needed for that environment yet. I like to be there, see it, see what people are like, see what the vibe is, see if it's chill, see if it's excited, you know. So and then go from there. Then a room sound can kind of dictate what songs you do or don't play. Yeah, or it dictates how we play it, or if we slow down the tempo or speed it up a bit or, um, you know, if it's approached a little bit more aggressively, if it's, if I approach it really gently, it definitely is affected by the actual acoustics of the environment. Right. So you released Blood Remixes in the fall of last year, and I'm curious yeah. if uh, any of the people's takes taught you something about your songs or, or revealed something about your songwriting in, in hearing other people's reads. Uh, um, not not really. I mean, the whole point of the, the, the remixes is just to kind of have someone else rethink them just for their own reasons. Um, I find it, like, really fascinating, really interesting to listen to, but it doesn't really change my perspective when I'm creating the music myself, you know? Um, it just, the remixes are what they're supposed to be. They're somebody else's take on it. I kind of dig that, you know? Right. So then you follow up the remixes with Spirit, this new EP. And as I understand it, you guys are, you and your, your partner are storing a piano for someone else. And that's kind of led you to playing the piano every day. Yeah, we were, we were like babysitting someone's baby grand. And then um, I started playing it a lot. And then I decided to buy a very specific piano. I hunted down this like 1984 U3 by Yamaha that has particularly nice wood. And, and then that's when I... I started just kind of making recordings, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to turn this into a record. Yeah, that's kind of what I, how I created Spirit. Now, you hunted down a very specific piano. Was there something about this? Like, had you played this piano in the past somewhere else and, and really liked it, or what, what led you to this Yamaha? Yeah, I, I had, and um, it's just the 80s era of Yamaha uprights are very, very nice. And... The action is amazing, but they sound really good. So I was looking for that uh, in particular, and then I found this kind of hybrid between a grand and an upright that it just sounded perfect when I heard it. So, but I was been I had been looking for a mid '80s Yamaha, and this this fit the bill, and uh, I fit the bill. And then I just kind of had it tweaked, had someone build a custom mute for it that's on a lever, so I can have it like not fully on or fully off. It's got like all these kind of variations of on and off and then from there i just 
kept making the record, yeah. Now, had you written with piano in the, in the past? Like, like had you written on the piano in, in the past, or was this kind of a new experience for the EP? I had written the song The Fall Starting on the Piano for my very first Rye record, and there's been a couple other things, but I think the reason why this is a piano record is this is really centered um, like emotionally around the, the sonics of the piano and what the piano gives to me and, and the way I react to the piano. So my other songs, I don't think of as piano songs. I think, okay, there might be a piano on it, but this record was just like a piano record where everything that was created was born on the piano. Is it something about kind of the emotive quality of a, like a piano, like tone-wise? The way I have that piano set up, yeah, it's very, uh, what's the word? Like, it's not pensive, but it's just got like a, a thing to it, you know? It's got, it's not morose either. It's not that heavy. It's just, it's just something's very, it's also the percussive quality of it is very, I don't know. There's a lot you can do on a piano that you can't do on a synthesizer, where, you know, a synthesizer you can do a lot that you can't do on a piano. But the piano just has a very specific, like, old-world quality to it, and I love the way it suits the human voice together, you know, in conjunction. I like that, the combo of the voice and the piano. It's just a perfect fit. Speaking of voice, yeah. I read an interview you did with Billboard China, uh from I guess maybe last year, talking about your singing style and that you let sound out of your throat as opposed to pushing sound out, and you describe that as yeah, that's a... kind of like the the concept behind um, not using falsetto and using like air tone. You know, when you're kind of allowing air to flow out of your voice, you're not like pushing it. Or you're not trying to you're not trying to make it uh, forced. It creates a different tone. It's not as shrill, and it's definitely not falsetto. You know, falsetto is very forced. You got to push really hard and change the shape of your your vocal cords to get that tone, to get that volume. So I don't sing very loud as a result. You know, my 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 actual volume is fairly low. Right. There's but, a hush to your voice for sure. Yeah. N- now, is that something you had like a vocal coach? You learned this, or is this something you just kind of developed on your own? How did you kind of figure out this this style? Um, it's what I find pleasing, essentially. It's not, I don't, I don't have a vocal coach. I never have, really. Um, I've done some vocal classes in university, but, um, yeah, no, it's just, uh, that's what I like hearing. I don't like being yelled at. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I find a lot of singers push because they're trying to overpower, they're pushing all this volume forward. I'm like, well, you know, this is an opera. I think opera, you need to do that because you're singing to the back of the room, but, in music, that's a lot more, or it is inherently intimate. What's the point of yelling at someone or, or forcing tons of volume out? I think it's better to, to bring everything in and just mic it better. Right. Now, you, uh, another interview that I read, you were talking about how, you know, coming off of a, a very busy touring schedule with Blood, you were kind of leaning on, on sort of contemporary or classical music and, and sort of the quiet to provide a, a bit of downtime for you or, or at least kind of respite. Um, that is that kind of what led you to Orlifer Arnold's? Because uh, I mean, that's certainly someone who's, you know, part of that scene right now. Yeah, I mean, we had met 
we played a bunch of festivals together, so we got to see each other play, and I met him a bunch of times in the backstage areas of festivals. Really, really nice guy, and um, I just happened to like his music, hearing it, you know, playing it. Um, I've been in many a yoga class where there's, there's Oliver Arnold piano piece, and I'm, you know, I'm doing like a particular pose with Oliver Arnold playing. So then me and my girlfriend threw this, uh, we did these ambient nights called Secular Sabbath, and we did one in Iceland, and we asked him to play and do a, an improv ambient set with me, and it ended up being four hours of him playing piano and me singing for four hours, and we had a small crowd of 50 people in a very small environment, and uh, we just really clicked really well, so we just kind of decided that we would eventually make a song together when our schedules allowed, and our schedules allowed, so I flew to Iceland and made made uh, patients with, with Oliver. I mean, it's a, it a beautiful experience. He's got an incredible way about him, like the way he plays piano. It's really amazing. Writing a song with him or like going into the, with the intent of, of creating a song, what's your headspace like when you're working with someone like that? Like, you're, Are you trying to kind of tap into the, the tone that he's set on, on previous releases or are you just kind of like working off of no, his emotion? Think, yeah, we just kind of like let things go and just, oh, that's, you start playing the chord progression, I start singing along with it and we're like, oh, that actually sounded really good. Let's just record that. And then I think we probably record in a very similar way and we're quite fast. You know, I was only in Iceland for two days with them to make that song. And then I finished the, the proper vocal take in um, basically uh, back in L.A. So I'm like, okay, that's cool. And then, you know, he did some of the strings there and I did some of the strings in Los Angeles to team up, you know, so we could get it done as opposed to flying back and forth. Mm-hmm. And so it was very effortless with him because he has a really strong... Uh, aesthetic already that, you know, matches the aesthetic that I'm trying to to do, or my aesthetic matches his. So yeah, there wasn't there wasn't a lot of like getting to know each other musically speaking. It just started. Right. The other collaboration uh, that I was curious about was with Dan Wilson on on uh, Needed, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I mean, this is someone who had had a career as as a band leader and songwriter, and then has you know certainly made a name for himself as a songwriter for others. What led you to Dan? Dan, somehow, like, there have been talks with my managers about us liking each other's music, and then it was just like, hey, do you want to meet each other? So we just met and decided to try working on something. We did, and I really liked him. <clears throat> and we just kind of, it was just like an afternoon of getting to know each other. And then I reapproached him a couple months later because I was making this record. I was like, do you, want to, do you want to meet up again and try something? I got into his living room, and I started playing his piano. And it was his idea. He was like, why don't we just do that? What you're doing right now, let's do that. So that's what we did. So we just, like, recorded me playing piano, which I thought originally he was going to play piano. Mm. And then he just added the bass to it and the guitar, and then we just started going from there. And apparently he judges a song by whether it makes the hairs on his arm stand up? I don't know if he always does that, but with me, he was very much interested in that. I found it really refreshing, actually, to have someone be much more, um, I don't know, respondent to an emotional reaction as opposed to just trying to 
come up with like a format or something like that or like an arrangement that's typical. He was, he was really interested in does it make him feel something on his skin. And so yes, the second verse took a long time because he wasn't satisfied with the feeling until this one take and then it's like, okay, I think we're done. But I just, I like the idea of just going with the flow with him. I mean, he's a really accomplished musician. If you just read his, his biography, his discography, right? You know, but when I was with him, I, I really appreciated his approach and I really appreciated who he was in a recording environment. So I was like, well, I'm just going to go with this. Yeah. Sure enough. Well, before I let you go, I want to get you to pick a track off Spirit that we can play for listeners. And if you have a reason why you're picking that song in particular, we'd love to hear that. Yeah, I think um, I think pick the song Awake. I think it's maybe because it's a little bit more gentle and it's not as immediate. It's kind of nice to have people hear that as well. Cause it's a little bit different than, than uh, all the other songs on the record in a way. Perfect. Well, we'll give that one a listen. Uh, Mike, thanks very much for taking some time and, and safe travels on the tour. Thanks, Frank. Appreciate it. Bye.
All right. Well, this has nothing to do with you. That uh, is is not a warning, but it is the name of the new book from Lauren Carter. Welcome. Thank you. So, I mean, not every book uses the title within the text, mm-hmm. but this book does. Mm-hmm. Multiple and, times. Actually. Yeah. And yeah. so I'm curious, like, was this always the title or did the title evolve? Um, the title, t- titles for me come pretty early on. Okay. So, yes, it was... You know, once I got about 50 pages in, I probably had that as the title. Um, kind of the first time you wrote, this has nothing to do with you? <laughs> it could have been. Yeah, it could have been. I, it's hard for me to remember. Sure, it was yeah. like five years ago. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it, uh, I get titles pretty early on. That one I did get early on. And so it kind of guides what I'm doing, right? right. It guides the story. It guides the underlying themes in the story. It guides what I want to explore what questions I want to bring up. Does it kind of create like a pen or like some sort yes. of like holding area in which the, the book then exists? Absolutely. Like a, a prism even, you know, like an, uh, an area through, where yeah. things can kind of reflect a hall of mirrors sort of thing. Right. Right. So it, because fiction, like any art, is not life, it replicates life. So it's really helpful to put those boundaries around it so that you can look at what you're trying to say in multiple different ways. Right. Yeah. Now, in talking to authors, sometimes, like, some people are, like, plot first, right? Like, that they have, like, kind of an idea of, like, narrative structure. And then some people are character first. Yeah. And I'm curious, do you hew to either of those Yeah, two? totally. Um, character. Yeah. Yeah, and Mel actually arrived early. I wrote three short stories, one which won the Prairie Fire Fiction Contest called Rhubarb. Um, with her in it. And it's it's sort of different biographical details. Uh, you know, she's different versions of herself in all of those stories, but she was around. So when I started writing this one, I thought I was writing another linked short story, mm. and it kept going. And I started with the high school graduation. I started with that night when there's a murder, and, you know, they don't know what it is at first, um, which is actually based on a, a real story from the night I graduated from high school, there was a murder on the highway, which is still unsolved to this day. Um, So I decided to kind of take that and and riff on it and and play with it. So if she was a character in this other short story, and like Mm -hmm. you said, like she evolves, uh, like did did you start writing this story not necessarily knowing that was her? Oh yeah, totally. I start everything blind. Right. I start everything with some kind of sentence comes into my head and I go. And, and because of that, I write a million drafts. <laughs> and I have a lot of, there's a lot of chaos, there's a lot of confusion when I don't know um, what the story is about yet, where it's actually going. Um, but I just persist in trying to unravel some kind of a thread of plot within that first draft. And then I'll go back to that and see where, what is the arc here? What is, what is happening? So you take that real life murder the unsolved one you use it as kind of a jumping off point for this story and then you're you're incorporating a character that you've already written in the past yeah like is there like an intentionality to that like like you like do you actually think in your head like i want to put this person on this course no she just came um she and she came in a different way so it's it's less like she's a solid character that I'm moving around and more like she's a voice that starts talking and through mm. me. 
It's a channeling thing, Michael. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. No. And I, I'm always curious. Like, yeah. Yeah. I'm very I mean, interested in like the mechanics of creation. Yes. And, and kind of like how. Oh, it's so mysterious. And and really, I don't want to. I don't want to do that thing where I'm saying, "Oh, my characters just decide what they want to do," because it's not like that. No. And like it's you said, more collaborative for me. And if you have like a million drafts, that means you're sifting through to figure out which things they're exactly. doing. Exactly. And I'm sifting through to figure out. What do I need to happen in order to show what I'm trying to say more effectively? Because it's not all about her. It's also about the dynamics of the theme that I'm exploring. You know, that idea of empathy and that idea of, you know, what what are we responsible for outside of our own lives? That kind of thing. Yeah. Er, early on, uh, the central character reflects about, you know, her dad's way of looking at the world and sort of closing himself off for it and saying it like doesn't concern me. Yeah. And that her brother and her mother both gravitate towards like feeling the entire weight of the world. Yeah. And neither is necessarily presented as the way to go about things. Mm-hmm. And obviously Melody is like struggling with which way to hew towards. Mm-hmm. Um, d- did you like it sounds like you intentionally wanted to tackle empathy. Yes. But did you grapple with like what level of empathy like what? Oh, yeah. You know, like what makes someone overbearing or like, you know, yeah. outside of themselves or like, you know, like there's, you know, only so much control any one person has over the world outside them. Yeah, absolutely. And when do you walk away? Right. When do you say this is too much for me? Or right. when are you driven to actions like Bernadette takes Mel's mom? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. And I think. The case with Mel, too, is that she doesn't, she kind of swings back and forth, right? Like, a big part of the book, I think, is her learning how to be a friend, even, how to be a good sister, um, because she is so bound in her own pain. And so she keeps making mistakes, right? One wrong decision after another, trying to cover her tracks, lying to people. She has a propensity for lying. And that, I think, was kind of intentional, because I didn't want... I didn't want to, you know, make it like a, a overbearing morality tale. I wanted her to be confused. I wanted the questions to be raised rather than to be like preachy in any way. This is not like a role model everyone needs to. Oh God, to or she makes so like. I mean, my editor was talking to me about how she just kept cringing, like <laughs> oh, seeing one mistake after another. That, it's like a slow motion car crash at times, yes. where you just kind of see things coming her way, and you're just like, "Oh my God, get out of your own way." Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, but it's told from her point of view, and mm-hmm. and I, I wanted to maybe talk a little bit about interiority mm-hmm. and like how you find that voice, and then also like propel the like plot mechanics through that like interiority right because i mean people see things their own way and it's not necessarily yeah how things are actually happening right this is the the rashomon thing that right you know there's like yeah for for three participants and and the fourth is the truth right yeah 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 absolutely so how do you sort of walk that line of like this is her story but like she is not necessarily, I mean, everyone's an unreliable narrator. Yeah. Yeah. And because there are so many secrets in the book that are held from her that she is on this journey to uncover and bits of, you know, life changing news that come her way. Um, like all of that, I had to really get clear in my head, like what exactly happened? What happened between 
their mother and Matt, what were the you know stepping stones that night of the graduation? How did that happen? Um, so I really I needed to be very clear about that, and it took a while for me to figure all that out. You know, um, yeah. So and what, what goes into figuring that out? Uh, just a lot of thought, a lot of looking out the window, <laughs> a lot of frustration. Um, and sometimes I think, you know, the most beautiful thing is when you're kind of, it's in your head, you're rolling it over, you're rolling it over, and then boom, the it comes to you, right? And I remember when it came to me, the final turning point of mm-hmm. that book, the final, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. Um, it is like an epiphany. It just, it just kind of arrives. And I think that happens the more you're dwelling within the story. You know, if you can live inside the story for a time, it, w- it will sort of fit the pieces together, or it does for me anyway. Is it a matter of like kind of sifting through those drafts and, and seeing kind of like a circuitous path? Yes, that, that too, that too, for sure. And seeing um, areas that I want to expand on uh-huh. and um, different characters that I can bring in to uh to help shuttle things around along um like bringing mel's boss to life that was a very late stage thing um that whole part with her work at the end i don't want to give anything away yeah i i don't want to like spoil yeah like narrative developments but i do i do want to kind of like explore kind of yeah the book as a whole yeah um so i mean because i said like it's it's her her telling mel's telling and but you, like you said, you bring in these characters and, and attempt to explore their lives and, and open these people up. Does it present a problem to paint a picture of, of other people through another person's eyes? Through right? the like, first it's person not your narrator. Eyes, it's through the first person. Yeah, narrator. and I think the limitation there is that you are with the character, right. so you you have to work with that limitation. Like it's a first person narrative, and so. What she sees is what she sees. And so I can't go into the secret rooms that are held back from her. Right. She has to find the key and go into the room. Yeah. Or the key. I mean, I had a lot of fun with um, scenes with her and her her best friend, Josie. Um, And Josie, like, is constantly trying to tell her something and she's not listening and cutting her off. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, I built that very consciously until finally... Josie is like so pissed off at her and just like grab her by the yeah and says this is what I've been trying to tell you this is the news you're so self-centered so that was fun right and that self-centeredness I mean obviously for her it is a coping mechanism right like she has had trauma in her in her life and I mean her first instinct is to run away she runs away to BC and then she runs to a cave in Sedona Mm mm-hmm and even though she comes back, she's still running away. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Like she, and, and creating like drama of her own with a dog and other things that keep pulling her away from, you know, being aware that she's supposed to babysit on her brother's anniversary and all like she just. Yeah. Is like wrapped up in her own thoughts, doesn't even realize like what what Josie's trying to say to her. Yeah. And it's I have to imagine like trying to make her sympathetic without being like a, she's not necessarily like a, an anti-hero but she's not yeah heroic. I mean I think the the real thing about Mel that I really loved about her is her vulnerability you know she's still trying like she's she's struggling a lot and she keeps making mistakes but she's trying you know and so I think in that way 
she's sympathetic. She felt sympathetic to me, like mm-hmm. working with her. I felt, I felt for her, you know, and I, I really, I love her. Right. It's weird. It seems weird to say that, but, um, she became almost to me like a little sister, like ushering her along. And so a lot of the real, the crappier stuff that happens to her came late in the game because I, I think I was shying away from, Were you um, protecting her. I was protecting her a little bit and I realized that I couldn't do that, that I had to make the stakes higher so that to propel the reader deeper into it. And yeah, yeah. So that was an, an interesting turn. You say, you say you love her. Yeah. Could you imagine yourself writing a character you didn't love? Like, do you find that you I ha- have? I have. Okay. I absolutely have. Like in um, my first novel in in, in Swarm, uh, Marvin, <clears throat> he's sort of the kind of anti-hero I guess you'd say um but and everyone hates him everyone who reads that book Mm. tells me you know and I he he was not a very likable guy and so yeah he does terrible things he leads the narrator to terrible things so yeah does that feeling towards him make it harder to write a character yeah he was really hard to write he was very hard to write and I think if I revisited that book I would I would try to understand him more I didn't spend enough time, I think, with him, understanding him. But in this book, I don't think there's anybody. I mean, I don't, you know, Mel's dad I, I don't like too much, right? Um, because he's got some kind of personality disorder, clearly, and there's an aversion there. There's problems there. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think for the most part, all those characters, I could, I could sympathize with them. I could feel for them. Yeah, I mean, obviously the dad were getting... Mel's memory of yeah. him. Um, yeah, and not really any of his backstory, yeah. which I wanted to put in, but I couldn't. But, I mean, that makes how. sense in this. Like, kids don't necessarily always know their parents, right? True, And yep. uh, particularly, like, kind of when you're younger, your parents are kind of a mystery to you outside of, like, your specific interactions with them. Yeah, um, yeah. He does, he's painted as, like, detached. Yes. Um and whether it's like an aloofness or like a purposefulness, right? Because he, uh, Mel does talk at one point about kind of like his response to like tragedy in the world is like, there. I can't, I can't control that. I can't deal with that. So I'm just going to ignore it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's painted in obviously stark contrast to Matt and her mother. Yeah. And so it's it's not necessarily like he's the villain for doing this. Yeah. Because it's obviously impacting Matt and her mother in a very damaging way. Absolutely, yeah. And it's it's more or less a coping mechanism. Yeah, so. yeah, sure, yeah. So, yeah, like I think the nuance of the, like how you see your parent or how Mel sees her, her parents in, in this respect uh, is, is probably like a hard kind of yeah thing to juggle. That was hard. That was tough. And I think... Writing about the moment they met uh, her parents yeah. really helped me with that because it it gave a foundation that any kid would have, right? Any kid would know, or m- many kids know that story of right. how their parents met. So I think in, in a lot of ways that was almost enough for me to go into the, the their past, right? Right, and you do, I mean, in, there's in like the a very specific past. vision of that too because uh, obviously she's on stage, she falls, she's hurt. But her dad doesn't put down his hammer. And that's like a detail that Mel cues in on. It's yeah. like even when he went to help her, he had, there was an obstacle or, or some sort of like 
just break between things. Totally. I'm really glad you noticed that. Yeah. So I'm mean, very, oh yeah, very conscious. It's like a symbol, right? He's still carrying this kind of violence forward. Like he can't put it down. He can't open and be generous to this woman and well, not that kind and of. He, he gives her one hand instead of both. Yeah. And that's almost like a picture of their whole relationship. Yeah. Right. And I mean, it's obviously meant to be apocryphal and, but I think a lot of kids notions of their parents meeting is that way too right whether yeah whether the the root of it has some sort of like very specific thing like this this hammer yes uh it's it's painted right it's it's a it's a reminiscence it's not like yeah it's, yeah it's coming it's historical that, fiction yeah yeah absolutely and it's also with everything that's happened right with them with the murder with everything looking back at that you know right yeah um so speaking of looking back, one of the, one of the passages that I really keyed in on was uh, Melanie talking about the past being a marsh, mm. and that you know it's pretty to look at, but when you take a step into it, it can like <laughs> suck you in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was mm-hmm. that like I, I'm curious about kind of the genesis of that idea and mm-hmm. like was that a, a driving force? Like had you had a picture like this of history? or a person's history in your head when you were writing or did this come out within the context? Yeah. Um, I remember when I wrote that passage. Um, so in the process of writing this book, my my brother kind of had a breakdown and he died actually. Um, and I remember that that, I, and then I, I just dove into this book. Like it was, it was a way for me to kind of put everything away and and I just worked on it and it's about siblings so mm-hmm. um it it was how I was dealing with stuff and I and I remember that I remember looking at that and um writing that passage and thinking about everything that he'd been through like his whole life leading up to that point he, he died by suicide mm-hmm. so um it, it was a little bit of a I think a, a nod to him at that at that moment right yeah so when you write an analogy like that, does that like, I don't want to say take you out of the writing, but like force you to like step back from your writing and, and oh, think yeah. about. Yeah, somet- sometimes, sometimes it's like it can be really painful, right? It can be really like it can just hurt. <laughs> but um, but it also makes it richer. It also makes it deeper, I think. Particularly in a book that's about processing trauma yeah, in a lot of ways. Absolutely, yeah. Is... Is it cathartic then to, to write something like this? Um, I'm not sure if it's cathartic because I think catharsis is when you can release, right? Um, I think it's more a kind of processing. It's a kind of um, rejuggling of pieces, fictionalizing um, a bunch of different aspects that I want to think about. And in that way, there is a kind of processing that's happening um, to make this thing and ultimately you end up with this product that hopefully sort of speaks to other people too in terms of asking those questions and considering those bigger things about what it is to be a human. Right. And yet there's like kind of like a weird kind of like armbar movement of this, the fact that it's called this has nothing to do with you. And yeah. M- Mel's interior voice basically says that to the reader the first time we read it. Yeah. Um, is it like a, a challenge or like a meant, you know, because it, I mean, even the idea of like something having nothing to do with you, you know, you know, Matt is 
super interested in the the Rwandan genocide, right? Yeah, and it's yeah. like, does that have anything to do with you? Yeah. No. Uh, you know, the issues that Mel has with the dog, right? The dog was very badly treated before she uh, adopts this dog. His, you know, mental state and, and his inability to kind of handle things, yeah. does that have anything to do with her? Not necessarily. So, I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a, obviously... It's the title, so it's a thematic element that comes up again and again. Yep. But it does seem kind of like like a pushback yeah. against like getting too wrapped up in it. Well, I think I and I really like that. I mean, I like that I, because of what we said earlier about Mal, about how she, you know, is kind. She's a train wreck. She keeps making mistakes. And so the book is really a challenge. I, I, I like that idea of it being a challenge because it's sort of like, will you open your heart to this person who's been through all this stuff? Um, that you only know about because you're with her in this first person uh, narrative. So does that have anything to do with you, with the reader? And it raises a lot of questions, too, about the power of fiction Mm -hmm. and what books can do, right? Like what stories can do for us. They can show us people's lives that we think those people have nothing to do with us. But when we read and enter into the depths of their lives through fiction... Suddenly we realize, oh, okay, we are all human. Yeah. So, was, I mean, this is the, the, way, the way the world works in terms of kismet as far as I'm concerned. I just happened to read an article about brain chemistry and the fact that researchers think our brains function as storytellers and not as reporters. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that this that is how we process sense. things. And so obviously yeah. in context of a situation like this, yes, of course, we take that challenge yeah. of, of looking at, the world through this other person's eyes through this character's eyes because that's how we handle things yeah and that was why I, I did make a very conscious choice to set it that spring during the Rwandan genocide because I remember that time and how you know I, I so many people I knew um, myself included were watching that unfold with such limited view because the borders were closed you couldn't see really into it um, and asking that question what does this have does this have something to do with us should we step forward you know and our government's sort of failing at that over and over again and Romeo Dallaire being there saying yes this has stuff to do with us come on and it's still not not being enough so choosing to situate it then yeah what kind of work has to go into like detail and research to like Mm -hmm. lend legitimacy to it I uh, printed out calendars from April, May, June, uh, 1994, mm-hmm. and had them on my wall so that I could cross-reference what was happening in Mel's actual life with what was happening in the news. Um, and I also went to the CBC in Toronto when I was home one time. I'm from Ontario originally. And I made an appointment, and I went in, and I watched a whole bunch of news episodes from various nights on those calendars where I knew Matt was watching Sitting the news. or TV. yeah. So that I could see, um, uh, what's his name, the newscaster guy who just re- retired a year ago, uh, uh, Peter, Peter Mansbridge. Yeah, I could yeah. see his terrible '90s ties and <laughs> and what else was happening too, the elections in South Africa and things like that. Right. Mm-hmm. So, like weaving that stuff in, does it present a challenge to kind of like incorporate it in a way that doesn't seem like shoehorned or forced? Like, um, not too much. No. Right. Like delicate. I think it, the the secret is to be delicate, like just a little bit here, a little bit there, and not like this is my research. Here it is, you know. Right, because yeah. there's allusions to like the music 
you know, the tapes that Owen would have in his car or yeah. in his van. Um, yeah. yeah. The, the one thing that kind of stuck out to me was that, you know, Matt's birthday party is an 80s birthday party. Yeah. And, like, I know that there's, like, nostalgia for the 80s, but did it, had there already been nostalgia for the 80s in 1994? Well, is I this remember something that you're kind of looking back on and Yeah. Um, I remember having an 80s party in 1992. Okay. Um, so I think there was to a certain degree. Like, and I think part of that is not just nostalgia for the 80s, but also nostalgia for the time before their lives fell apart. Because mm. it's Matt's idea to have that party when things were more innocent, when he had this great life in Toronto and at university and and things seemed really like the world was his oyster, you know? So I think it for him it was a let's go back, let's dial back the clock a little bit and to have some fun kind of thing. A retreat. Uh, yeah. Sorts. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, nostalgia aside, memory is is its own thing. And we've kind of talked about like how people kind of filter things or, or, or tell their own story. Um, but like, did you pull on your own memories of that time also to create kind of the vibe of, of the book? Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Like listening to Linger by the Cranberries, you know, 87 times in a row. <laughs> Um, those blue shirts that guys always wore in the in like the, the, in the 90s. Ones? Yeah, they were like that. I don't know what they were called, but um, I remember seeing them everywhere. So things like that, you know, I would pull in. And then sometimes I'd get on the Internet and kind of take a look at what what was some music that I didn't know about that I wasn't listening to at that time. I had to do some research on the big the type of big screen TVs that were around then because mm. Owain has one. And I wasn't sure how what it would look like exactly so right. i had to dig around for that yeah the other thing about memory uh, so mel's job at the library she's scanning documents yeah to, you know preserve these articles and, and she does wonder like what's the point does anyone care yep uh but obviously like you had to go to the cbc and pull from their archives yeah and, you know yeah. go online and look at archives yeah uh, it sounds like the the process itself resolves that question that Mel has but I think a lot of people who are not necessarily about uh, obliterating the past but at least like going past uh, beyond it and and you know maybe doing what her father would do mm -hmm. shutting themselves off from these things yeah uh, yeah there might be like an argument on either side of whether she's you know yeah. tilting at windmills or actually yeah. And I mean, these are, you know, a lot of some kind of small town, small city-ish new newspaper articles. But I think in considering that, what I was thinking about was how we looked at things at that time. Like we, we didn't look at, we didn't have any awareness the amount of information we were going to have, right? The amount of information that would be saved, that would continuously be saved and that would be like produced every single day of our lives now. So I think at that time, it's such a weird thing to think about. Like she's, you know, going about this effort to scan these things into the into the early humongous computer when now it's like snap of the fingers and it's there. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a bit of a how do we look at information? And I think I, I wove that in a little bit um, just in considering, like, how do we see the world outside ourselves? 
because it is such a contrast to now when this morning I was watching MSNBC, you know, just like the ongoing 24-hour news cycle where Matt's like getting the newspaper and listening to CBC and waiting for the 6 p.m. news and, and stuff then, like, like that. And then like writing down Yeah, taking notes. Journal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like her job then, was that something that you created because it helped kind of tie into this notion of like memory and, yeah. and preservation? Yeah, absolutely. And also I was working at a library at the time. Um, and so I was sort of seeing these, you know, the clippings file, the old clippings file from way back, um, sifting through that and, and um, just think, thinking about I'm, I'm trying to remember when I came up with the scanner aspect because I had to really look at that and really ask some questions about would this have been a thing in 1994? It's maybe a little bit early. Right. But then I had the idea of that guy at the university donating this like high tech machine. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 Uh, well, the book is This Has Nothing to Do With You. Lauren Carter, thanks very much for coming in and talking Thank about you. it. Thank you. Fantastic discussion. I appreciate it. Let your love grow cold 
Just to see if you
Back here on Thank God It's Free Range, you just heard Tiny Ruins with a new single called My Love Lita. Before that, brand new, just uh, did a, a listening party for it last week. That's Begonia with The Other Side. It's the leadoff track to the album Fear. It's about to come out on Coke's Records, and uh, Begonia set to take the world by storm over the next few months, touring on the strength of that record, and then coming back to Winnipeg to cap things off with two dates in February of 2020. Yes, we are already looking at 2020 scheduling for shows. A little closer to home, a little more up-to-date burn stick. That was Love Grow Cold from their new album, Kiana, 
and that is at the West End Cultural Center tonight. So uh, in just a few minutes, they will be taking the stage, or rather their, their opener will be taking the stage. Uh, before we hand things over to After 8 Radio, I'm going to play some, uh, some indie rock and uh, some indie R&B. Nutrients from Toronto just sent me a new single called Such Slime. We've got a great song from Girl in Red's Beginnings, Chapter 1 and 2. New single from Hannah Vu, and we're going to close things off with Young Clancy and a track off of his new EP called Volume 2. Keep it locked here on 101.5 UMFM.